Hey, quick update. So after taping this podcast, Sham Sharania came out with a tweet announcing the punishments for an incident I spoke of in the podcast, the Mo Wagner, Killian Hayes, a dust-up kerfluffle. So three games for Killian, two games for Mo Wagner, one game for Halmadou Diallo, and a whole slew of games for Magic players who I presume left the bench based on what I've read, including a man named Admiral who was not showing very much leadership, ironically. So that doesn't really impact any of my take, uh, as the punishment was somewhat irrelevant to what I had to say, but just wanted to disclose that in case you were wondering why I didn't acknowledge it during my discussion. So if you find that offensive, well, then get on your high horse and go fuck yourself, okay? Earlier today, when I was thinking about things I wanted to talk about on the podcast, one of the subjects that came to mind was this story that I saw today regarding the Lakers and how they may stand pat rather than making trades because they just, they don't know if it's worth it with Anthony Davis's health in question and they don't want to give away assets for nothing. And I chuckled a little bit to myself. Don't get me wrong. I'm still a LeBron fan. I always will be. But if there is one resentment, I suppose, that I still hold on to. It's that despite the Cavaliers completely fucking themselves every time he was here in terms of their future. I mean, they traded away draft picks. They took on huge salaries. They massively overpaid role players who would be near worthless the moment that he walked out the door. But they did it anyway. Left everything on the floor in an effort to win. And when LeBron dipped the first time, Gilbert fired off that Comic Sans manifesto that definitely did some damage. And when LeBron James came back the second time, he did not give a long-term commitment to Dan Gilbert or the Cavs. He took one-and-one deals. But then when he left to go to the Lakers, and he immediately signed a four-year deal, this being after he did the same thing when he went to Miami, there was a little part of me inside that was a bit bitter that, you know what, maybe we could have got more talent around you with the Cavs if the impending free agents just knew, okay, he's definitely going to be there. It's always a what if I'll wonder about. So we've moved forward. We got a great core now, nothing to feel bad about. But when I saw that story today, I did think, well, isn't this just a kick in LeBron's dick? Here he is in his swan song seasons, a team that he brought a championship to after they have struggled mightily since Jim Buss's death. All I heard about lived in Los Angeles, for years and years, and all they say is, well, what makes the Lakers different is that they take care of their stars. Do they now? Do they really? And here I was, I was, I'm admittedly, seeing them exposed for their hypocrisy, it delights me. It also makes me feel better that this whole narrative, we didn't do anything to put talent around LeBron. Well, how easy is it, L.A.? And it's so easy to sit up there on those national shows and hear talking heads say, well, the Cavs didn't do enough to keep LeBron happy. Meanwhile, I think actions speak louder than words. Say what you will about Dan Gilbert and the things that he said. But what he did was perpetually go into the luxury tax, was retain everybody that LeBron wanted retained, and was blow up this roster on a regular basis at the trade deadline if LeBron was unhappy. Did it time and time again. And that's to say nothing of what he did when he wanted to get LeBron James back. Do you know how rare it is for a billionaire to apologize publicly for a misstep? Don't forget this quote. 
when he was courting LeBron James to come back to the Cavaliers. We had five great years together and one terrible night. I told him how sorry I was, expressed regret for how that night went, and how I let all the emotion and passion for the situation carry me away. I told him I wished I had never done it, that I wish I could take it back. Just listen to that statement. That shit sandwich, he just gobbled it down. That's the equivalent of, I mean, basically, he was blindsided by LeBron. If LeBron was his girlfriend, he came home that one day in the middle of the summer, and LeBron was just laying the pipe to the Miami Heat. But, but then, four years later, he's the one apologizing for it. I'm sorry I got emotional when I walked in and you were balls deep in another team. I was ridiculous to get that upset. And my point here is that the Cavaliers, whether it was smart or not, every single time they did everything they could to help LeBron James. And then we arrive here tonight, where LeBron is now on a team that is just wasting his waning years, and in doing so, they have fucked the Cleveland Cavaliers somehow. Now how, Bob? How are you making that jump, you may ask? Well, three seconds into the game, when Buddy Heald buried that three-pointer, which then would become five three-pointers and 25 points, en route to sinking the Cavaliers. That man could be playing with LeBron James right now if that inept management team just pulled the trigger on the trade at the start of the season. They could have had Heald and Miles Turner. But no, those two murdered the Cavs tonight. And so here we are on a night where my ire should be focused at the Pacers. Instead, I feel it's divided equally between Lakers management and the Indiana Pacers. Cavs drop one on the road to begin this road swing. God damn it. Oh, two hands. That'll bring the house down. Three on the way. Good. Garland spins down the lane and laid it in. This crowd has a rocket. Welcome to Fear the Fro. A podcast covering the Cleveland Cavaliers and the NBA with the voice of Fox Sports Radio. Figure out a way to stop it. Listen and subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. Here it is. My favorite show. And now, your host. His name is Bob Schmidt. Welcome into the Fear the Fro podcast. So you know how it went. We lost, but here's some things which you may not realize. The Indiana Pacers. In this defeat of the Cavaliers tonight, in which they hit 19 three-pointers and shot a blistering 61% from the three-point line. You may be asking yourself, is Indiana this good from range? I mean, I knew Buddy Heald was good, but this was just a clinic of outside shooting from the Pacers. The answer, in short, is no. No, the Pacers are not this good from distance. Typically, Tyrese Halliburton doesn't make six of eight attempts, 75%. Typically, that doesn't happen. Typically, you're not going to get five of six from Buddy Heald. And overall, as a team, you're not going to shoot over 60%. In fact, that has not happened ever this season. Just one time this season have the Pacers made half of their three-point attempts, and that was in a win over the Brooklyn Nets back at the end of October when they made 23 three-pointers for 46 attempts. Now, while they did not hit 23 three-pointers tonight, they hit 19, and they did it on 15 less attempts from outside. To go 19 for 31 is by far their best effort of the season. What other efforts were their best efforts of the season, you might ask? Well, funny you should say that, because from the line, the Pacers were 20 of 21. That's 95%. 
And that's good for the best effort on the season as well. Can we get the triple crown? The trifecta? You bet you can. Because yes, at 48 from 85 from the field, the Pacers shot 56.5% from the floor, which was their best showing of the season. So you may say, this sounds awfully familiar. Didn't the Nets just light up the Cavs for an unbelievable 60% three-point stroke the previous night? Why, yes. Yes, they did. 19 for 31 for the Pacers. The previous game, 18 for 30 from the Nets. However, that wasn't their best effort of the season because, fortunately, when they destroyed the Golden State Warriors, a 30-point victory, 143 points scored, they made 21 of 33 from outside the arc, 64%. So that dubious distinction was not hung on the Cavaliers, fortunately. We came in second, yet again, to the Golden State Warriors, a theme which I hate historically. But in this context, I'll take it. Other statistical achievements. Now, I already alluded to how Buddy Heald recorded the quickest three-pointer in a game since the tracking began, which was the late 90s. But who did he displace? By making that three-pointer so quickly, you might be wondering. You probably weren't, but I'm going to tell you anyway. It was Reggie Miller, another pacer, who made a three-pointer four seconds into a game back in 2000. Coming into the evening, Buddy Heald was already leading the NBA in three-pointers made. He was beating Steph Curry just barely, who hasn't moved on that list due to his injury for quite a while. And you know who number three is? Donovan Mitchell. So the most prolific three-point shooter in the NBA dropped five on the Cavs tonight and now has 137 three-pointers on the season to 124 for Donovan Mitchell. So we all know how many three-pointers Donovan Mitchell hits. That just goes to show you that while they may not get the headlines because of a mediocre record, Buddy Heald is playing his ass off. And if ever there was a time to say, sell high, sell high, sell high, now would be that time. Buddy Heald over the last 10 games, has been shooting a scorching 59% from three-point land, making over four a game. So this man has this year left and next year on his contract. And the Pacers, who are a younger-ish team for the most part, are looking at Heald as an asset that, you know what, with our wing depth, and we got to see a lot of that tonight, Neesmith played his ass off. He went right at our big men. There was one play in particular where he was in the corner on the left side and he pump faked, Mobley closed out on him, he drove right around him, and he went up against Jared Allen and managed to convert the bucket, the balls, to go at two of our best defenders, beat them both. It just doesn't usually happen, especially from guys who are six foot five. This was an exceptionally efficient showing. Obviously, the numbers bear that out. 57-61 splits from the Pacers, 95% from the line. We already said that. But to get that kind of production, the two Pacers of the future we all hear about, they were good, but it wasn't Halliburton that ended up leading them when they went on that 10-0 run and took the lead in the fourth quarter. It wasn't because of Halliburton. The fourth quarter story for the Indiana Pacers was Benedict Matherin and Aaron Neesmith. Those two combined for 22 points, and it was them making six of eight shots from the floor, and making ten free throws between the two of them, they are effectively what doomed the Cavaliers in the fourth quarter. Now, so far, this Fear the Fro podcast episode has been a giant suck fest of the Indiana Pacers. I realize I've been praising them a lot. My mood is distinctly different. I am bummed we lost this game, but I actually admire what we witnessed 
from that team on the opposing side. And Jared Allen, let's just highlight, though, some of the positives from the Cleveland Cavaliers. The first thing I want to say is, despite the fact that the Cavaliers lost in the fourth quarter, Jared Allen balled out in the final period. Scored 13 points in the fourth quarter. I think that's kind of getting lost in the sauce to a certain degree. But three offensive rebounds and 13 points was a perfect 5-for-5 from the floor. Donovan Mitchell, as one possibly would expect if we found ourselves on the wrong side of a big run, he went cold in the fourth quarter, just one for six, and that was problematic. When you combine that with his third, he was just four for 16 from the floor in the second half. You could weather that, but the volume, I mean, he more than doubled up the next highest shot attempt guy in the second half, which was Jared Allen, who chipped in with 15 points. Good things did come out of this game. Not the final score, not the place in the standings, not the fact that a team that probably shouldn't beat us, beat us. But Isaac Okoro, last game he was buried. He was taken out of the rotation because the Cavs decided to start Lamar Stevens and the Nets beat us and Okoro played less than 10 minutes. Tonight, back to double-digit scoring. An even split between he and Lamar Stevens, 21 minutes for both guys. And while I thought Stevens started out bad, his third quarter was very solid. There was a run there where he scored five consecutive points, a three-pointer, and then took it to the rim, and that was big. His offensive rebounding was good. He created some second opportunities. Sometimes those were off his own misses, but still, I'll take it. He got stuffed by Miles on one and got his own rebound, put that back up and in, and then he bricked a free throw, which he got the rebound on and was immediately fouled. So not the way you want to see him get offensive rebounds, but he was active on the glass He at least had a solid stretch of basketball in his first shift in the second half. That brings us to the other wing who is constantly pitted against him. And I said, I want both these guys to succeed. I'm not in this camp of people who thinks one of them needs to be yanked and the other one needs to get 35 to 38 minutes. I'm fine with playing the hot hand. And I think Isaac Okoro is proving that's now four straight games. Now you take out that Brooklyn game and Isaac Okoro when getting over 20 minutes is giving you 10 points a game, and he's doing it on over 50% from the floor. In his last five games, he's shooting 57-36 splits, and you'll take that. That's with one turnover. So not on high volume of shots, but it's aggressive. Take it to the basket. He got a nice foul on a Euro step. Isaac Okoro getting whistles is a rare feat. So when that happens, when he's able to hammer a couple, Mobley found him on a beautiful reverse layup dime today. That type of off-ball movement is progressing, and that's what we need. And if that only comes when he gets consistent minutes, then goddammit, give him consistent minutes. I think he's earned that now, and he's shown enough consistency where I'm green light. I'm saying do it. I'm late to the party, I realize. There's a lot of people who were saying this a few days ago, but I was in the Lamar Stevens stardom against the Nets camp, and now I'm in the, well, Okoro's starting to outpace him. I've come around camp. How about the pace of the Cavs in the first half here, trying to get out in transition? Now, Okora was a big part of that, but more than anything, I think we need to point out that Karis LeVert scored 19 points tonight, 14 of which came in the first half. He was a huge part of the Cavaliers getting out in runs and trying to exploit that Pacers defense before they could get back. Now, they were good in the paint as well, but they also had more fast break points than the Pacers, not something the Cavs are typically very prolific at, and especially with Osman out of the lineup. I thought that that could fall off a cliff, but no, they outscored the Pacers by nearly 
24 points in the paint. They had more fast break points. They had roughly the same amount of turnovers, minimal for both teams. But the fast break specifically, they were going up against a team that has the best fast break offense in the NBA. And the Cavs, they are not high on that list. They're 23rd in the NBA. So to outdo the Pacers, again, in a loss, hollow victory, but something that was impressive to see, I thought, and their rebounding was unbelievable on the offensive glass. Still, they came away with the loss, but I'm looking for silver linings here. Kevin Love struggled. If if we're going to point to downsides, I think you could say a couple of things. The key missed free throws. We spoke of that. Garland missed both of his. Stevens missed both of his. Kevin Love got exploited defensively. They shot great. I'm not going to say that the Cavs played bad defense. I thought their interior defense, I thought they fought hard. The physicality on the bigs, there was a couple plays which were discouraging. Watching Miles just blow right through Jared Allen, seeing these guys for as big and imposing as they seemingly should be against a team starting such a small lineup as the Pacers. The Pacers held their own in terms of physicality. I thought they were very solid. Give Love credit for crashing the glass. At least he tried to do that. It was a balanced attack by the Cavs, but If you believe in plus-minus, I'm not a huge advocate of that. There was two guys who gave you positive plus-minuses tonight. Isaac Okoro led the team with seven, and Jared Allen with one. The worst performer based on plus-minus would have been Evan Mobley, a minus-18. Hence, why I'm not a big fan of plus-minus. I don't know who I think should have been last in it, but certainly didn't watch this game and say Evan Mobley is just getting destroyed. But if you look at these stats and, and what they did out there and just the flow of the game, the thing that was crushing was just letting another double-digit run go in the fourth quarter, a 10-0 run from them after it looked like they had finally started to pull away and you're getting towards midway through the fourth quarter and then things just unraveled. They had a seven-point lead early in the fourth quarter. It was 108-101. to And the next thing you know... Rick Carlisle lost his mind. I haven't even listened to his post-game comments, but I'm curious what he's thinking, knowing that he left the game, things were starting to slip away, and then they blew it open in the fourth quarter. So a play in the second half where Donovan Mitchell found himself in trouble as he went up in the air but had nowhere to pass the ball to, so he quickly hurled the ball off the backboard and went to catch his own rebound, which he did, but He wasn't able to go back up and score before the defense had a chance to react and recover. However, what he did find was a streaking icicle Coro who hammered down a one-handed dunk that led to a stoppage in play because Rick Carlisle was so incensed that Donovan Mitchell wasn't called for a travel and then they ended up scoring that two points on the Okoro dunk that he got himself thrown out of the game. At that point, the technical free throw had them cutting the lead down to two points. They would go on to take the lead. However, it wouldn't last long because the Pacers, trailing 119 to 116, ripped off that fourth quarter 10 0 run and they made it 126 119. They did not relinquish the lead after that. The challenge situation came back to bite the Cavs as well. And it's funny because I was thinking while this was happening earlier in the game, Kevin Love was getting roasted a bit on the defensive end. He had a fair amount of blunders on that end. He got just blown by by Tyrese Halliburton on one play. He forgot some rotations, didn't close out on Jalen Smith. But one of the big problems for Kevin Love, he had four personal fouls tonight, and most of them came while hunting for charges that would not come. With Kevin Love, there was one particular charge 
that he tried to take on Benedict Matherin, and he did not get the benefit of the doubt. They called him for a blocking foul. It was in the first half. JB decided to challenge it. He lost the challenge. Then later in the game, unfortunately, Benedict Matherin went up for a layup, threw it off the underside of the rim, and after it hit the underside of the rim, Isaac Okoro slammed the ball against the backboard. So as soon as it hit the rim, there was no such thing as a goaltend. But the refs screwed up the call, called it a goaltend, and it cost the Cavs two points. Would that have made a difference in the outcome? Probably not. But that was a moment where you very much wished you had your challenge. And I said sometime earlier in the season on Twitter that I was of the mindset of the first 100% obvious screw-up that JB sees, he should use the challenge. Because there were games upon games where he was not even using the challenge, and Jared Allen was finding himself on the wrong end of calls all the time. Tonight, he decided to pull the trigger early on a call that I think most of us saw on the replay and knew was going to go the wrong way. I mean, I said it before they announced the result that, no, Love is not going to win this challenge. They won't overturn it. His foot is sliding slightly. And sure enough, that's what happened. And then that was a valuable two points that they could have perhaps gotten back. They 100% would have gotten it back. It was super transparent on the video, but they didn't have the chance because you only get one challenge. That is rough too. The more this season goes on, the more I think they need to up that limit slightly. I'm not saying you have to go full-on NFL and giant long stoppages or whatever the case may be, but I do believe it would be a step in the right direction to say, if you win your challenge, you have another one to use. You should be able to have challenges at least until you lose one. So yes, the Cavs lost theirs. That wouldn't have worked in their favor tonight. But there are other nights where they win the challenge where I, I think that should allow them to keep another one in their pocket. That's my feeling. So that brings us to the next game, which is against the Chicago Bulls, a team which is 5-5 five and five over their last 10. They now sit in the 10th seed in the East, a play-in game which would see them pitted against, well, one of the... Heat, the Knicks, the Hawks, one of those squads. They're still ahead of the Raptors, so go Bulls. I'm sorry we have to deal you a loss. That is unfortunate. The last thing I want to see is joy in Toronto. But this team, the Bulls, they have issues, obviously. Lonzo Ball's injury, pretty crippling for them. They have Levine. They traded a bunch of assets, which turned out to be Franz Wagner, Wendell Carter Jr., a draft pick, which they don't control this year, which based on how terrible they are, could be pretty great. Those were all given up to bring in Vucevic, and he has struggled to change the fates of this team. Now, Levine, he's having a rough year. DeMar DeRozan, still exceptionally productive, but for a team that, similar to the Cavs, was the darling of the first half of the season last year, they are struggling this year. So to get them two straight games on a back-to-back, hopefully the Cavs can rip off a couple victories because things get far dicier after that. And the Cavaliers need every win they can get to preserve home court, which still is far greater. Home, 16-4. and four, Away, 6-10. and 10. We have to make some inroads into not letting these huge runs go. That's enough for this part of the podcast. But since this isn't exclusively a Cavalier podcast, I also like to touch on NBA subjects through the framework of viewing them as a Cavalier fan. I wanted to talk about a guy who made the news yesterday after he was knocked unconscious, seemingly, following an altercation on the court with Killian Hayes. And that man is Mo Wagner. Now, many of you may have seen the play. You may have seen part of the video. You may have seen the whole video. Here's the gist of what happened. 
The Pistons and the Magic are squaring off. A loose ball starts to head backcourt. Mo Wagner is out in front trying to run it down, but Killian Hayes takes off in a dead sprint as a smaller, faster guy, hoping to get to the loose ball before Mo Wagner. Wagner looks back, sees Killian Hayes is closing, and rather than trying to gather the loose ball, he decides to take a full sprint, Killian Hayes, put his shoulder into him, which then checks him into the front row and he has to dive into the seats. Now, this all takes place in front of the Pistons bench. So immediately after he hits Killian Hayes needlessly, sending him into the stands, I think he realizes, well, shit, this could be trouble. I'm standing in an entire bench of Detroit Pistons players. And immediately there is a reaction. Hayes, fortunately not injured, springs up. Before he gets to Mo Wagner, Hamadou Diallo shoves Mo Wagner into... Isaiah Stewart. Now, even in that moment, it looked like Mo Wagner blacked out. His head rocked back as he's in the clutches of Beef Stew on the bench. By this point, Killian Hayes, who is irate, has covered the ground between where he crashed into the stands and Mo Wagner, and he proceeds to swing at Mo Wagner's head. Now, it wasn't what I would call a punch necessarily, but he definitely connects the side of his hand, his forearm. Hits the back of the neck or lower head area of Mo Wagner. And from that point, Mo Wagner just kind of falls into the seats and disappears amongst all the players in the Pistons. It looks like he's completely out at that point. If he was out standing up, he was definitely out on the way down. Now, I don't know if he was unconscious. I don't know if he was trolling, pretending to be out to just kind of say like, yeah, you knocked me out with that soft ass punch. But that's really not material to this discussion. The fact is, Killian Hayes threw a punch. And it's never mattered whether it connected. Unacceptable. He's going to get a suspension. But here's where my annoyance comes in. Because you don't generally see a 6'9", 6'10 guy go unconscious from light contact to the back of the head, that video is everywhere. Sure, you had the video out there of Mo Wagner shoulder-checking him into the stance. An extremely dangerous play. But in half the videos all over Twitter and Reddit, they edit that part out and only show the swing. I think there's a group of fans out there who perhaps are saying to themselves, who gives a shit about these bench warmer role player scrubs? I've never heard of any of them. I think it's valuable to give some context to who Mo Wagner is. Now, many of you know that he's the older brother of Franz Wagner. Both of them played at Michigan. Throughout his career, Mo Wagner has regularly been deemed as an irritant, which is a nice way, oftentimes, of saying a borderline dirty player. The type of guy who talks after whistles, the type of guy who plays up to the very end and sometimes through the whistle in a way that you could interpret as dirty. And for those of you who remember this year's Magic Cavs game where he was a starter due to injuries, he definitely is that type of player who some of his tactics border on, well, that's just straight up dirty. Now, the most headlines Mo Wagner has probably received since entering the NBA, Giannis was ejected from a game because after Mo Wagner sort of flopped his way into a charging call on him and knocked him down on a box out for a rebound, during a dead ball, they were crossing paths on the way back to their respective bench, and Giannis headbutted Mo, got tossed out of the game. Mo act shocked. He stayed in the game. In that moment, I'm not condoning Giannis's actions, but if you can get to Giannis, who everybody knows is just an extremely nice guy, maybe there needs to be a little more attention paid 
to what got the people to those points. Too much of today's commentary has been focused on Hayes, who has little to no history of bullshit plays and bullshit maneuvers like that punch that he threw, overlooking the fact Mo Wagner was the catalyst. Maybe some of these violent reactions to stuff that's happened with Wagner lends to the idea that we need to crack down on this guy keeping it between the lines and playing actual basketball. So the Giannis thing happens, and then about a year ago, Mo Wagner is asked about the Giannis headbutt incident when he was on the Long Shot podcast, a podcast hosted by his former Michigan teammate, Duncan Robinson, who you know is with the Miami Heat. And what I'm about to play you is an exchange from that podcast where they were asking him to explain what happened in that whole situation. The first voice you'll hear is Duncan Robinson, and then he's replied to by Mo Wagner. Generally, you are somewhat of an agitator. You've almost kind of like worn that hat proudly of like, this is who I'm going to be. This is kind of like what I'm bringing to the table. I'm not saying that as a, as a negative or as a jab. No, that's no, a, that's no, a, no. I think it's, it's, it's like mental warfare. And I, that's like what we're talking about. Like, be good at what you're good at. Like, right. that's, that's your value. So it's an element you it's bring your to the game. It's your superpower. So also like the superpower, like then be good at it. Like, obviously, and I'm trying to, obviously you can't get, to a point where it doesn't it has to help you and your team you can't surpass that and then you're just in your different world and i don't know you do just crazy shit all game because you're trying to provoke somebody that's not the point of doing that at all so even in this podcast mo wagner he acknowledges that yes sometimes he's trying to do this stuff but always under the context of i'm trying to help my team and i can't take it up and pass that line well he passed that line because in shoulder checking Killian Hayes, who was on a dead-on sprint to try to get the ball. He sent him into the stands. He sent him into a sea of people, metal, chairs. He could have twisted an ankle, blown out a knee, broke a leg, fell on a chair, which breaks off a table leg, and then it pales you, similar to the Ron Artest story. So many things can go wrong. He could die. And I saw a lot of that pearl-clutching bullshit on the other side. Oh, Mo could be, it's super dangerous to strike a guy in the back of the head. I'll say this about that incident. If we're going to apply that catastrophizing to the Mo side, it needs to be applied to the Killian side too. The people who are willing to overlook who started it, who are willing to overlook how dangerous Killian Hayes and the situation he was put in was, but they're willing to focus on the fact that Mo Wagner got slept. You're missing the point somewhat. I am full on supportive of this idea that Killian Hayes needs to be punished. I felt the same way with Beverly. You can't pull that bitch shit and hit an unsuspecting person who's not even looking at you. That's wrong. Suspend him. But I think Mo Wagner should be suspended for an equal amount of time. One, because he was the catalyst. He started the whole thing. Two, because despite I know I'll get a lot of pushback on this, Bob at Fropod.com or at FearTheFropod on Twitter, I know I'll get pushback on this. But if you were to say to me, Bob, I'm going to give you two choices. You can be struck with a forearm in the back of a head by a man who's standing there. Or you can be checked while sprinting full speed into just a sea of people and chairs. I'm taking my chances on the hit in the back of the head. Barring death, that shit is way more dangerous and likely to have a way longer fallout for Killian Hayes. If you break a leg, tear an ACL, blow out a knee, your season's done. People are policing the outcome. You take two shitty actions. Mo three, if you want to count Diallo, but he's really not even in this commentary. I'm specifically dialed in on Hayes 
in Wagner. You're taking two shitty actions. One by Wagner, a player with a bit of a reputation as somebody who can't keep it between the lines, to throw this check into a guy and expose him to injury, and then Killian Hayes reacts equally inappropriately by swinging at him. But we only want to punish Killian Hayes or we want to excessively punish Killian Hayes. There are times in life you police the outcome. A drunk driver kills a bunch of people. Okay, he's charged for murder, even if his intentions weren't to go out and kill people when he got behind the wheel drunk. I understand in real life scenarios, all the time, we police the outcome. But if we're making a real life comparison, it's more along the lines of a man's assaulted, he defends himself and kills his assailant. It's still wrong, but it's a hell of a lot more justified. We can't all of a sudden throw the book at a guy because inconceivably a huge man went unconscious from a shove in the back. If anything, we should be less fixated on the punishment and we should be sending that man to get some sort of CAT scan or something because it suggests a problem far greater than just getting into a dust-up with Killian Hayes. How the hell does that even happen? So intent to intent, both guys aimed to harm. You can carry water for Mo Wagner if you want and say, well, no, he, he just shoved him. He didn't, he didn't mean to possibly injure him. You shove a guy on the sideline running full speed into the stands You're looking to do some damage. You're looking to send a message. And if you watch the extended replay, you can even see as the ball's loose, he looks back over his shoulder to see if anyone else is pursuing it. He knows Killian is coming up. He can't plead, oh, he can't do what Draymond does. Well, I I couldn't control my body. You're not a kinesiology expert. He can't pull that card. He knew Killian was there, and he decided he'd do what he had to do to use his body as a weapon. Was Killian Hayes' intent to do some harm to Mo Wagner? Absolutely. And that's why don't conflate this. I'm not saying Hayes shouldn't be punished. I'm saying the bad optics of watching that giant man go unconscious should not all of a sudden elicit him sympathy and some sort of lighter touch in terms of a punishment when he kicked the whole thing off. Some accountability has to exist, which which I guess sort of blends into my second subject here, which is Kyrie Irving. I saw a lot of discussion after the Nets beat the Cavs about should we retire Kyrie Irving's jersey? And I had a couple thoughts on this. Now, I've ridden as hard against Kyrie Irving in the stupid way that he handled his anti-Semitic remarks as anyone has. You can listen to past episodes of the podcast, and I don't have any sympathy for a man who digs a hole and then keeps digging and keeps digging and who allows pride to prevent him from simply apologizing. But I also think there comes a point where the man now has been punished. He made it worse upon himself, and he got a worse punishment because of it. And some of it is the kind that is doled out by the league, whether it be a suspension or a fine. But there's other kinds of punishments that have come as a result of his own ability to inflict self-harm, a punishment that came in the form of losing sponsorships, millions of dollars. Nike backed out. They walked away from him. And there is a group of fans who feel he should never have his number retired here. If you feel that way, I respect your opinion. But oftentimes in that anti-Kyrie faction, there's a subset within there that believes that if you happen to be able to both appreciate what Kyrie Irving did on the court and want his jersey retired, despite the things that he said off the court, that you haven't gone far enough. And that's the part that I think is a bit ridiculous. I totally support the idea that you find what he said offensive, as do I. But I don't support this idea 
that you can tell other people what they have to find offensive, or more aptly, perhaps, how much power they have to give to offensive things that Kyrie said to change their perception of a whole era of Cavalier basketball. And this is one of those subjects that I struggle with because you know there's no love lost from me for Kyrie Irving in basically everything that he's done since departing the Cavs. But I will say, I don't think a jersey celebration is a positive solely for Kyrie. Will he feel good? Probably. But it's as much about the fans as it is about anything. And their feelings don't just tie to Kyrie. They tie to that whole era. Why would people, no matter how offended you are by what Kyrie did, want to take away that type of moment? For that night, when they honor him, it's going to bring all those fans back to that moment where we won an NBA championship. It's going to bring a bunch of his teammates, Kevin Love, LeBron James, all those guys, J.R. Smith, the people who were there. Do you remember how good we felt when J.R. Smith was there in that Donovan Mitchell push-off game and the clips of him on the sideline reacting? It was heartwarming for a guy who had a pretty not great departure from the Cavaliers. But a night that honors Kyrie comes along with a lot of fantastic things. And I think people are losing sight of that. Truthfully, I think sometimes the people who have managed to hold on to the positive feelings about Kyrie, I don't think that means they forgive the stuff that he's done since then. Sometimes those are just people who are able to focus on positives and not negatives. And that's very difficult to do in a Twitter world. And even me, my last podcast, I listened back to it. I'm ashamed of myself. I just end up bitching and moaning about the refs. I need to curtail that. Even because if just one egregiously bad thing happens. Tonight, the Okoro goaltend that wasn't a goaltend. Or the Nets game. Jared Allen gets thrown to the floor. And the Cavaliers went to the line 30 times to 17 for the Nets. And yet I couldn't let that one moment go. With Kyrie Irving, he's got multiple moments. Yes, there's the flat earth. There's the anti-Semitism. There's the line to the Boston fans. There's the anti-vax stuff. I realize he's given us a litany of things which we can weaponize to make the case that he's a piece of shit person. But in such a desire to punish him and take away a moment that would honor him from him, we're willing to punish ourselves. I want team reunions. I want people to remember historically how unlikely a comeback from 3-1 down and defeating a team like the Golden State Warriors who set a record for the most wins in a regular season ever was. And sure, you can look all that information up on YouTube or Basketball Reference, but there's a big difference between that and doing a ceremony where it's going to get national highlights, where it's going to get talked about on inside the NBA. Maybe it even gets us a national game, which would allow a lot of people to see it who are pretty frustrated with Bally's right now. And the only way to do that is by bringing these guys back, is by honoring them, not burying them because of Kyrie's anti-Semitic stuff. That's letting him be harmful all over again. Because then, what are we going to get? Nobody talking about what the Cavs did, it being lost to the annals of time, and we just get stupid Celtics on television, night in and night out, talking about 2008. It's fucked up. But that's why I am firmly in the, yeah, retire Kyrie's jersey camp. Because, no, I don't like him. But I also don't want the memories of those teams or any chance to spotlight that on a national level taken away simply because he said a bunch of fucked up stuff. It's like he hurts us twice in that scenario. One with the harmful things he says, 
and then won by tainting and ruining the legacy of a team that should not be defined by his stupid actions. So yeah, that's how I feel on that. And that may do it for this episode and also this year, 2022, in the books on the Fear the Fro podcast. An absolutely amazing turn of events here. And this time of year, I know people always ask, well, what are your resolutions? What are the things you want to accomplish in the new year? Now, me personally, it's the same list every year. Stay in reasonably decent shape. Learn as much new stuff as possible, not including languages. I've given up on that altogether. But skills, you know, graphic design, web design, audio design, all the nerdy computer shit which has kept me getting fatter in front of this computer and fucking up my first goal all this whole time. But anyway, as it relates to the podcast, I just want to, same thing I've always wanted, find and engage a community of passionate, mostly positive, but realistic Cavalier fans and do it in the most fun way I possibly can. I have a love, a lifelong love of the Cavaliers and I cannot subject my inane ramblings to my wife or the vitriol I feel when the Cavaliers lose. So instead, I direct it at a microphone in this empty room. And that's what prevents me from snapping when things like a 10-0 Pacers run fuck up my whole evening. And this podcast has allowed me to direct that rage at you, virtual strangers, who may now know that I am an unhinged psycho, but my wife doesn't know. So, Thank you, I guess is what I'm saying. What is my goal in 2023? To make sure that you feel appreciated. Who wants a hand job? Just kidding about that last part. Or am I? This has been Fear the Fro. If you like the show, subscribe and rate wherever you listen. Our guy, Bob Schmidt, always gets a reaction out of it. Join us next time for more Cavs and NBA coverage.